Brethren, good morning. It's a privilege and, and pleasure for me to be back with you to open up God's Word. And I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 22. I'm here this morning again with my wife and two children. And my wife and I have just uh, this morning uh, celebrated our 40,000th hour anniversary. 40,000 hours together of uh, great joy and blessing. We were married back in August of uh, 2017. And we have such fond memories of that day. We were blessed to be able to have um, our whole church family together with us for that reception. And we had uh, so many people who were gracious and gave of themselves to uh, make that day extremely special for us. And that's not the case with every wedding. Um, our passage this morning is set in the context of a wedding feast. But as you may know, there can be a lot of drama around a wedding. Um, your average wedding might be very dramatic, but um, not like this wedding. For this wedding, uh, it affects local politics, businesses, it affects traffic, troop movements, it destroys families and wipes whole cities off of the map. To attend it was a great honor, but it also came with the danger of arrest and being taken from everything that makes you happy. And so follow along as I read then Matthew chapter 22 and verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast." But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot. And cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. Brethren, let's bow before the Lord in prayer. Our Father, Set our souls free from prison and help us to give thanks and praise to you. God of peace, please be with us and grant us faith 
And help us, O Lord, that we might uh, hear and take to heart what the Lord Jesus has for us in this passage. We pray that the cause of Christ would be advanced, not only in the world, but in our own hearts. And please give us light by your Holy Spirit to understand these things. And we pray in Christ's most worthy name. Amen. I love this parable because it is packed full of rich gospel illustrations. And just to map this out a bit in Jesus' life, we are just a few days away from the cross when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. And he's already ruffled feathers by entering the temple and acting like he owns the place, because of course he does. He's performed miracles of healing to the delight of children everywhere when they sing Hosanna, but to the extreme disapproval of the scribes and the chief priests. Everything Jesus did and said got under their skin. They demand to know how he dares to do good and preach truth. And Jesus skillfully exposes their haughty hypocrisy with a question of his own. And it's against this backdrop of increasing resentment and deep disbelief by the Pharisees that this parable comes. And really three parables. Uh, We have back in chapter 21, verse 28, the first parable which speaks of two sons whose feet are out of sync with their mouths. They say that they will, uh, will or will not go work in their father's vineyard and they later change their minds. And it warns us of rejecting God's law by lack of repentance. And then in 21 verse 33, we have the second parable which speaks of fruitless vineyard workers who sow violence and reap judgment. It warns of rejecting God's authority by unfruitfulness. And by verse 45, it would seem that the Lord had made his point. Look at chapter 21, verse 45. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And they were, they were enraged and they wanted to arrest him. So why did the Lord see fit to fire another arrow, which would equally condemn them? Well, here we have apples of gold in settings of silver. For the Lord never spoke a word out of season. And this parable for, that we will consider this morning, it isn't merely recorded to demonstrate Jesus' teaching style or to prophesy about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. This is a gospel tract. It points us to the Savior, and Jesus means us to take this to heart. So we'll consider this parable in basically two halves, the first being a gracious invitation refused diversely. And that's the first seven verses of our text. First, we have a gracious invitation that entry into the king's banquet was repeatedly urged upon the invited guest. And notice what it was an invitation to. It was a royal wedding feast. In verse 2, we have the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Whereas the first two parables were set in the sphere of labor and duty, this parable is set in the sphere of joy and privilege. As one writer put it, we are at once in the same time laborers in the king's vineyard 
and guests at the king's table. And it's important for us to size up this event. For one thing, it's a royal party, and this is one feature that sets it apart from Luke's telling of a similar parable in Luke 14. There's more gravity to this, and in a time when uh, we don't know what it is to be under the reign of a monarch and respect for governing authorities is plummeting, it is hard for us to, to feel this, to grasp this. But think of a teacher who might uh, be recognized as teacher of the year. She might, for that, receive a, a plaque, some flowers, uh, a gift card. But imagine if her service is further recognized by the governor who recommends her to go to the White House and meet with the president for a special banquet to honor the efforts of outstanding educators all over the country. Now that has gravity. The kid saying, Mrs. Snyder is going to meet the president? That's significance. It wasn't just a party here. It was this grand and sumptuous affair, a wedding feast that is literally fit for a king. And it's all at the king's expense. This isn't to celebrate someone for their 20 years of faithful service. This is to celebrate the heir to the throne, a toast to the future and his future reign. It would have been a joy and a privilege to attend a regal and momentous occasion. So just how is God's kingdom like a king hosting a wedding feast for his son? Well, good news. The gospel is not about you. The gospel is bigger than you and me. The goal of the gospel soars to the grandest scale. It is for the noblest cause. God is celebrating his son. How much do we appreciate Christ? In Philippians 2.9, it tells us that the father has highly exalted his son, giving him the name that is above every name, a most honorable title. He is glorifying him far above every being in heaven and on earth. In Hebrews 2.9, we see God the Father crowning his son with glory and honor because of his suffering and death. How dear is Christ to you? This is a, a father who declares his love for his son to all the world when he thunders it from the cloud at Jesus' baptism, saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And a wedding feast is at the center of the glory of Jesus Christ. Look with me at Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 9. Here we have at the end of all time, Revelation 19, verse 9, the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You know, some people think that life is just one big party. They say you only live once, and it's all about uh, enjoying what you can, in, uh, uh, get what you can, live life to the fullest, because it will all soon end forever. But that's not true. Life is a preparation for a party, if you will. All of history will 
culminate, will be consummated in a great cosmic feast, a wedding feast, the likes of which have never been seen this side of eternity. Life is all a preparation for that eternal feast with the Son of God himself. And God, as King, has prepared the greatest of blessings and delights and is determined to invite the children of men to join him at this grand feast of grace. And Jesus knows this. Jesus is looking forward to this. In Luke 22, at the institution of the Lord's Supper, Jesus says, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. You see, the gospel might not be about you, but it greatly concerns you. What is man that God should be mindful of us, let alone extend an invitation to us to enter his house and eat his food and share in the joy of his son? And yet we read of just such invitations in the gospel. The gospel of Isaiah 55, it says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come by and eat. There is rest. There is plenty. There is privilege in the gospel. Notice how gracious and lavish these royal provisions are in our parable. In verse 4 of Matthew 22, the king says, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. This is not bare staple foods. This isn't a potluck where everybody brings a little of this and a little of that. No, the king himself has crafted the menu. He has purchased the ingredients. He's had his servants cook everything up and serve it on the table. And he says, it's now ready for whoever would come and have it. You don't have to bring anything with you. Don't try to help. Just come and everything will be provided. And if you've ever vacationed in in an all-inclusive resort, which I haven't, but you know the, the luxury of having everything covered. It's designed to be a carefree experience. So you can just simply enjoy. There's an an urgency to the timing here. Everything is ready. Come. It's not just that everything has been been covered. In other words, my wife knows that I like uh, hot food. I want to see steam. I want to be told, don't touch. You have to use a pot holder and those kind of things. And so she'll tell me uh, when she's just about to serve, meaning that everything is, is cooked. It's finished. Uh, It's about to go on the table so that we can get everybody, my two kids, seated and ready for that very moment. It's ready to eat. And that time for the feast is now. And friends, what a vibrant picture of the gospel this wedding feast is. God has prepared everything necessary so that sinners may come freely and join in this eternal bliss. He has left nothing undone. Sins have been paid for in the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, his own son. Peace and righteousness have come by his death and resurrection. The Holy Spirit has descended to dwell within men and make plain the things of God. And God even pleads 
with men to persuade them to come and partake, just as this king does not relent after his invitation is ignored. He's adamant that his son's feast must be well attended. So do you see the amazing grace of God? That he invites those to come. But when the world hears that invitation, they say, no thanks. Notice then how the invitation is refused diversely. The invitation is snubbed and the servants are assailed. First, they simply refuse. They would not come. And we might judge even this initial response as inconsiderate and rude, perhaps surprising. But remember that the tone is aggravated here by the royal caliber of this event. Here there are people who prefer their own wills over the king's. And is that that not true of of us when we sin? They They made up their minds not to come. But it wasn't just the decision. They were pressed into action to resist coming. They snubbed the invitation. Some wouldn't even give it the time of day. They had better things to do to suit themselves Back to work, back to bed, back to video games, to Netflix. They had no desire at all to attend to the king's business. And it was a personal affront to his majesty and his crown. They had no respect, let alone affection, for their ruler. And then they they assailed the king's servants. The rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. So while many neglected the invitation, we have a few here who violently oppose it. And just consider, how does that response make any sense under the circumstances? Why would such innocent messengers bearing such a gracious invitation be provoked to such wrath or provoke such wrath in these people? And yet we can ask the very same question within the kingdom of God. Jesus said, you will, be simply, you will be hated simply because of my name. We have missionaries bearing gifts of, of kindness and truth that are struck down as foreign assassins. Family members are estranged and despised for simply sharing the source of their hope and happiness. There is no rational explanation for it under the sun. There are spiritual forces that are at war. And the gospel provokes wicked men. And wicked men provoke God. Look at the king's reaction there in verse 7. We have an angered king who dispatches destruction, sends his troops, and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Having seen their deliberate and excessively nasty treatment of the invitation, it's easy to see how the king would be angry. He patiently and persistently pleads with them to come. And then he retaliates. He orders his troops to target the offenders and destroy their city. To destroy their city. I talked to someone recently who thought that, you know, in the end... uh, it'll turn out that God was not as severe as 
religious people uh, sometimes make him out to be. And that's a popular sentiment. People are fond of saying, only God can judge me. And yet, they don't really believe that will amount to much. They believe the mercy of God is elastic and it will stretch just enough for them to get inside of it. And wow, are they in for the surprise of their deaths. The Bible minces no words and pulls no punches in warning us not to mess with this king. And yes, even in the New Testament, the Bible tells us, turn to to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Second Thessalonians chapter one. In verse seven, we're told that the Lord Jesus, meek and mild Jesus, who is such a good teacher and he's so so respectable, the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice the form that this vengeance takes in verse 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord. And from the glory of his might. Destruction and separation. This is the terrifying reality of the heavenly king's reaction. To refusing to heed the command of the gospel. So beware of rejecting God's grace and refusing this gracious invitation. Secondly, then, see with me a gracious invitation received hypocritically in verses 8 through 13 of Matthew chapter 22. We have again a gracious invitation, but this time it's different. A charge is given to sweep the streets for guests. He said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready. Those invited are not worthy. Go, therefore. You see, the the father really is serious about giving his son the honor that he deserves. He's undeterred. And he charges his servants once more to round up the guests. But this time the invitation is expanded to the broadest possible audience. Anyone within the sound of these messengers may come. People from every strata of society. You have the upright and honorable along with the destitute and depraved. The bad and the good as it's summarized. All alike are summoned from their various stations to come. And so you see this is how the kingdom of God works. Whereas once the oracles of God were specially entrusted to the Jews, and they were privileged with God's presence and promises. Whereas at one time the Gentiles were separated from Christ and strangers to the promises, now in Christ, those who are far off have been brought near by the blood of this glorious Savior. No longer strangers, but welcomed members of the household of God, And what a happy ending it would have been if the parable just simply concluded here. They were all called. They packed out the venue. There's standing room only. No excuses this time. No delay. 
and they celebrated happily ever after. But that's not the lesson that uh, the Lord has for us and that he wants to drive home. So notice how this far-reaching invitation was uh, received hypocritically. The venue is packed, but the king detects an unrobed, inexcusable guest, verse 11. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Well, finally, the, the goal that has been so troublesome to come by, uh, the king has it. He's aimed at this full celebration for his son, and now he's got it. So he comes to see that everything is satisfactory, and it's perhaps the the crowning moment of the evening, maybe even greater than when the the, uh, bride and groom are presented. The king comes and makes his appearance and and walks among his people. And he observes there a guest Like uh, Jesus says in Matthew 23 of the Jews. Flip over to Matthew 23. If you were in Matthew 22, that would just be a page over. I have to flip back here. The Jews observe the Pharisees in Matthew 23, verse 5. It says, of the Pharisees, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. And that's our word here. It's describing how ordinary Jews look at the Pharisees and they are impressed by seeing all their sophisticated acts of piety and devotion. And here the son careful or I'm sorry, the king carefully observes his guests, inspecting them to see if they are properly arrayed. And yet there is one, of course, who stands out among them. What's wrong with him? What's his clothes? He's in street clothes. It's not right. He's just come from the marketplace. The servants found him on his lunch break, perhaps, and he's not dressed for such an occasion. It's not just out of place here. It's appalling. If if he wasn't wearing uh, the filthy rags of a laborer, he might as well have been, because that's how foul they were to these royal eyes. They are dishonorable and disgusting clothes that he's wearing. Nevertheless, the king doesn't lose his cool. He approaches him gently in a way that must remind us of the Lord Jesus on the night that he was arrested when he was greeted by who? By Judas. Greeted with a kiss by the one that at that very moment was trampling underfoot the perfect son of God and betraying him into his captor's hands. To him, Jesus said, friend, do what you have come for. And how kind is this king? How immense his dignity and composure. What matchless love he has for sinners. Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? Notice the man's answer. He has none. He's speechless. He has no excuse. He can't point to the other guests and say that they don't have a garment either. He can't say he didn't have time to prepare. He's too poor to afford one. He doesn't even protest. Oh, the garment? 
I didn't realize that that was necessary. His conduct is completely inexcusable. You see, he knew better. He despised the king's kindness and thought he could come in another way. He's really worse than those who refused to come at all. At least they were, quote, honest sinners. But this man is a hypocrite. He dared to come and pretend like he belongs there. He might have fooled everyone else. We don't have any indication that anyone else saw any reason why he stands out. And he might not have stood out in any obvious way, but the king saw what was missing. And that's the key question for us that we want to consider now is what is that wedding garment? What was he missing? There are a number of passages, numerous in scripture, that use the imagery of a garment or a robe. And you have Isaiah 61, for instance. Isaiah 61, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. You remember back to Revelation 19. And that was said in the context. Verse 8 says that it was granted to the bride to clothe herself with fine linen bright and pure as she attends this grand cosmic wedding feast. Or you have Romans 13, uh, verse uh, 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And God makes it clear that our street clothes, if you will, will not do. Isaiah 64, verse 6, he says, We have all become like one who is unclean, And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. And so you see, if we are found in the polluted garments of sin and self-righteousness, we will be cast out by God and forsaken. We need a change of clothes if we are to come before this king to his feast of grace. We need pure and spotless white robes to stand before a king. A perfect righteousness and Where can we obtain such clothing? Well, for this man, it seems he should have taken a garment from the servants, handing them out at the door. I've had the privilege of being a groomsman for a couple weddings. And in those cases, the groom told us um, what uh, color suit we should wear and what shoes we would need. But he said that he would provide a necktie for us to wear because he wanted to coordinate the colors so that we all matched up and so so it is here that it wasn't just the tie that was provided and it wasn't just restricted to the bridal party everyone was provided an appropriate covering after all what does the king say everything was ready and so that wasn't necessarily limited to the food they would eat he gave them what was necessary And in the gospel, God has provided everything necessary for salvation in his son, Jesus Christ. You see, the garment is, of course, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
That's the only garment that God will approve of. That's the only one that gains you entrance and favor with the king. And it's the only one that will allow you to enjoy permanent blessings. It can't be bought or crafted. It must be received as a free gift. And so you see the garment was to be received by grace, just as the feast was to be received by grace. This man refused God's grace. He came without the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that could mean two things. Either he lacked faith in Christ alone for salvation, or he lacked the holiness without which no man will see God. Either he hoped his good deeds would save him, or he didn't have any. You see, the garment of Christ's righteousness has two parts. And this is the doctrine of imputed and imparted righteousness. They're both in view here. On the one hand, Jesus Christ perfectly obeyed God the Father. And he went to the cross and suffered the sins of his people, suffered for the sins of his people. And through that righteous act, the Bible tells us, he brings the gifts of righteousness and the abundance of God's grace to believers. Just as it says in 2 Corinthians, for our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And a sinner clothed in righteousness means that his sin is forgiven because of Christ's finished work. But it also means that the sinner has taken off his old way of life and put on a new one. It also means holiness of life, of life. just like Luke writes of righteousness. He writes of Zechariah and his wife, saying they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. You see, no one is saved by their good works, only on the basis of Jesus Christ and his righteousness by faith can we be saved. But nobody is saved without good works. The imparted righteousness of Christ proves that our faith is genuine. Just like James tells us, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but has not works? Can that faith save him? Faith by itself, he says, if it does not have works, is dead. And so it's possible that this man uh, sees himself, that this, this man, excuse me, we could see him as one who responds to the gospel. He comes and professes faith in Christ, but secretly he's relying on his own goodness to save him. But it's also possible that he had no substance to that profession because no amount of name dropping can keep you in the wedding feast. Many will say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, while pursuing their sin. And he will say, depart from me, just as the king does here. We are only saved by the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. But our works will also justify us. That is, prove out and be the evidence of that working in our life. And so see the king's reaction. The servants are directed and 
the guest's doom is ordered. He says, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Refusing the king's garment and coming in some other way was disgraceful and it was dishonoring. And this is one of whom uh, Jesus spoke, who broke in and came over the walls, if you will. And therefore, he is dis- uh, ejected from the party and cast into the darkness of the night. He's not allowed to partake of the feast, and he's doomed to misery. And it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, especially as a hypocrite. Again, God is not a cosmic Santa Claus. He doesn't just bring gifts. He casts sinners out of his presence and into eternal misery. This is not a God to trifle with. Pretending to be his friend without any vital connection to him in union with Jesus Christ is a death sentence. And you see, a faulty acceptance of the gospel is no better than a rejection of the gospel, an outright rejection. So beware of rejecting God's grace and trying to come to him on your own terms. For God hates hypocrisy. And finally then, and briefly, we have a solemn conclusion. Jesus says in verse 14, For many are called, but few are chosen. Now, if you're like me, you find difficulty with this, uh, with this verse, the ending of this parable. Why is this here? It's a sad and solemn conclusion. And it, it seems to fit with the misery of the guest. Um, and it's not the calling part that is, ha- is hard. Of course, we have many people that are called to attend the feast. That's plain enough. But what does this passage, what does this parable have to do with predestination and, and election? This isn't about people being cho- chosen, is it? It's about people choosing whether they will attend and how they will attend. So what is the point? Well, Jesus would have us to understand that election plays out in real time and space. That it's, it's real flesh and blood decisions. What you do and how you respond to God's calling in the gospel is vitally important. Because it demonstrates whether you are chosen for salvation or simply one who received an invitation. Some people get up and walk out of church if they hear uh, election mentioned from the pulpit. It's repugnant to them. They, they stress the sacredness of freedom of choice and believe that God would never violate someone's will. Well, all of these guests responded of their own free will. They made a choice. And if you would avoid the destruction, the wrath of God to come that he is sending on sinners, then... It's your choice. Come. Come to God that he might have mercy on you. Come and leave your accomplishments at the door. Come in the filthiness and stains of your sins. Come and be clothed by a king with righteous spotless robes. It's not enough to be called. It's not enough to know a lot about the Bible and be convinced of God's promises or the substitutionary atonement of Christ and these various things, you must come. It's not enough to to come even, to attend church, to join a church, 
to look like everyone else at church. You need to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith exercised. All known sins forsaken. Holiness cultivated. And by this it will be exhibited for everyone to see that God has chosen you for himself. Many are called, but few are chosen. What shall we say then to these things as we wrap up? Well, the core lesson here and the point that Jesus is driving home for the Pharisees is do not reject God's grace. And we can look at that in two parts, the two parts of this parable. First, do not reject God's grace by refusing to come. Turn over to just press home in Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55 and the invitation that we see there to unbelievers. Unbelievers, come and eat. It says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. You see the provision? Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? My unbelieving friend, come and find what truly satisfies your your deepest needs. God has made provision for you in your deepest needs. In your sin, He has provided the Lord Jesus Christ who has died in our place. In your guilt, He has He has washed all of your guilt away and and justified you in the Lord Jesus Christ. In your weakness, there is power that overcomes death and sin. In your darkness, He has brought the light of the Holy Spirit to illuminate our minds. In in your brevity of life, in your death, He has brought eternal life and the glorious inheritance that awaits us. In your poverty, He has brought a free gift by His grace. Unbelieving friend, the Gospel calls to you today. God, the King, invites you today to come and partake of His feast. Come and eat of the Lord Jesus Christ and find provision for your needs. Find joy and everlasting hope in him. And believers, we must also not reject God's grace by refusing to come. Delight in this king. He has made full provision for us and he earnestly desires that we join him. The Lord Jesus Christ today is seated at the right hand of God. He ever lives to make intercession for us. He is on duty. He is working to effect salvation and and secure that eternal. He has secured that eternal security for his people. But he's also poised with anticipation. He earnestly desires that you would be with him. And so come and receive grace. Go to the means of grace attending daily to devotions, attending to the ordinary means of of preaching and prayer. Believers receive grace in your discouragements. Some of us reject God's grace because we, by allowing ourselves to just be flattened 
by a giant weight of whatever has us down. Instead of rolling our burdens onto Christ's shoulders and receiving joy and contentment by his loving care. My friends, the Christian's not allowed to be discouraged. Hope in the Lord and receive his grace even in your discouragements. And believers, look ahead, not here, for these joys and pleasures. There is a feast that sustains the Christian through his sojourning life. But there is a great feast to come. We're just getting appetizers here in this life. There is grace to be poured upon grace. And nothing in this world will satisfy someone who has been made for another. Remember to take up the telescope of faith and bring near those promises which seem to orbit afar off. A heavenly inheritance. A a glorious reward is yet to come. And these things are not to be compared with the present sufferings that we endure. Come to him for grace and set your mind on things above and see Christ as your lasting treasure. And then secondly, do not reject God's grace by hypocrisy. Rejecting the gospel doesn't look like spitting and throwing stones only. It doesn't just look like vehemence and violence. Sometimes it looks like acceptance. You can look like you're on the Lord's side, but your allegiance is merely an allegation. There are no deeds to back your words. You may respond to the gospel call. You may have someone who only has a bare profession of faith with no repentance. The hypocrite is, a, is all flower and no fruit. Hypocrisy is claiming you have righteous deeds when you don't. Hypocrisy is not practicing what you preach like in the case of the Pharisees. And hypocrisy is claiming God's blessings when you spurn his commands. You may come with great Bible knowledge and speak very spiritually and yet by the corruptions of sin our motives can be not to edify our brethren but that others may think well of us. Like Thomas Watson says, the hypocrite feigns humility, but it is that he may rise in the world. He carries his Bible under his arm, but not in his heart. You may come, but secret sins hollow out your profession of faith and your outwardly righteous life. You have a form of godliness, but deny its power to mortify your lusts and deliver you from sin. And be sure that the King of Kings will expose you. Nothing escapes his watchful eye. It's better to bow the knee now and confess your hypocrisy while there is still time to come to the feast in a worthy manner. Right now, today, he invites you. This is the era of invitation There's room for you at God's table. He saves even the vilest of sinners, even the biggest of hypocrites. My friends, why do you think Jesus preached this parable? Certainly, it's a glorious illustration for us. It's a sober warning for us. But assuredly, he had a nearer target 2,000 years ago when he shot these arrows. 
Remember that the Lord Jesus was dealing with men who were textbook cases of hypocrisy. The Pharisees defiantly challenged Jesus' authority. And in response, he holds up the trifold mirror of these parables so that they may see their true character and to warn them of their impending doom. He sought, my friends, to carry their consciences, to impress upon them an urgent sense of danger before it was too late. Brethren, how do you feel when, when you read Jesus' dealings with the, with the Pharisees? when he warns these hypocrites. Do we say, as, a, as I can find myself saying, yeah, that's right, you tell them, Jesus. Or do our hearts break, seeing the sincerity, the gentleness, the patience, the wisdom, and the compassion with which our Savior deals with them? My friends, every time we are reminded of our sins, it is a mercy of God. Even in judgment, God gives grace. Every time we're confronted with the threat of that judgment, it is a mercy of God. God is giving you an opportunity to turn back. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, to save sinners who have despised him without cause and who have spurned his marvelous grace. So won't you come? Won't you receive his grace? Receive grace in the Lord Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection there is an invitation to you so won't you come may God help us and may he draw near to us as we come to him remember the promise of Psalm 9 verse 10 that says you O Lord have not forsaken those who seek you and blessed are those who seek the Lord with their whole heart. My friends, be careful. Christians, be careful. Especially unbelievers, be careful not to reject this kind offer, this marvelous grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our God, we come before you unworthy, We are creatures of dust. We confess that we are saturated with sin in all of our being. Even the good that we do seems to be corrupted by sin at every point. Our God, won't you be merciful to us and send this grace upon us. Make us to know the greatness, the readiness of your feast in the Lord Jesus Christ. May you bless us with more of him, more love to Christ, more obedience to Christ. May you advance the cause of Christ in our midst today. Sanctify us, bring comfort to us, and let us taste of that eternal joy that we may have with you through your Son. Bless us in his name. Amen.